Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before the modern era, there were five ways to make music. You could clap, sing, beat a drum, pluck a string, or blow through a pipe. From that simple set, orchestras were built and the great pieces composed. A thousand times a thousand instruments have been invented and refined, uncountable rhythms and melodies brought from the mind into the world. Music is the thrumming heartbeat of human work, of socialising and entertainment. In ancient Egypt, music was an ever-present aspect of life. Whether it was a party, a meal, a private recital, a funeral, a festival, or a temple ritual, music and singing were frequent elements of any event. We have an abundance of records detailing when, how, and why music was played. We even know the lyrics to some of the more prestigious or popular songs. Unfortunately, we simultaneously know a lot about Egyptian music, and also very little. We know what instruments were played, who made them, and what combinations they made, and what they did while making that music. But we still don't know how it sounded. Apart from some very basic ideas, there is a giant black hole at the centre of our musical knowledge. With that in mind, any attempt to explore ancient Egyptian music is missing the most important ingredient, the music itself. But we can say quite a lot about it, and thanks to some attempts at reconstruction, we can at least give a hint of how the ancients may have evoked their ideas in the form of melody and rhythm. To start with, we should know where music came from. As you can imagine, it was probably the work of the gods. Music had been invented by two gods in particular. Their names were Thoth and Merit, and each of them played a part in the organisation of the cosmos and the creation of the divine melodies. It was said that Merit, a minor goddess whose power was focused in the realm of singing, had created the cosmic order, or Ma'at, by means of her music. She used singing, melody, and hand gestures to fashion this order. Merit's music created the cosmic and divine system. Quite a nice way to start a universe. After that, the great god Thoth came into the picture. Thoth looked upon Merit's music and saw that it was good. We are told by a Greek writer that Thoth sought to enhance the order which Merit had created. To do this, the great god, quote, observed the orderly arrangement of the stars and the harmony of the musical sounds and their nature. Then he made a lyre and gave it three strings, one string for each of the three seasons of the year. The high string was from the summer, the low from the winter, and the medium from the spring. End quote. Thoth took his instrument, a three-stringed lyre, and created the three seasons of the Egyptian year. So the harvest in summer, the flood in winter, and the planting in spring were also established by the mechanism of music. 
Putting the work of Thoth and Marit together, we can say that divine music was at the heart of life's pattern, its rhythm, if you will. Now these stories of Thoth and Merit were created or recorded well after the Pharaonic era. But even if we take these later stories with a grain of salt, we can at least understand that on some level there was a powerful connection between music and the divine realm. In the major periods, the time of the pharaohs, at least three different gods were associated with music and singing. The greatest of musicians, the chief of melody, was the great goddess Hathor. The lady of fertility, mother supreme, eye of Ray, and foremost of westerners, Hathor was the celebrated queen of sexuality, drunkenness, and dancing. Naturally, those things are very much enhanced by the addition of music. Hathor was queen of the party scene, and her influence is found in both religious music and secular performances. As we will see throughout this episode, it is Hathor who plays the most important role in the creation and celebration of the divine, of melody. Rhythm and music are hers. If Hathor was the supreme musician, then Osiris was the archetypal connoisseur. Once again, a Greek writer, Diodorus Siculus, tells us of how Osiris and his fondness for melody, dancing, and performance created some of the great beings of the world. By the time Diodorus came along, around 60 BCE, Osiris had become intertwined with the Greek Dionysus, and this affected how the Egyptian god was represented by Greek writers. Dionysus and Osiris shared enough aspects that the mythology around them blurred together, and stories of one became stories of the other. With that in mind, Diodorus recounts how Osiris kept an entourage of musicians and performers, and how his travels throughout the world led to the creation of music as we know it. Diodorus tells us, quote, While Osiris was in Ethiopia, the Satyr people were brought to him, who, they say, have hair upon their loins. The satyrs were taken along on campaign because they were proficient in dancing and singing and every kind of relaxation and pastime. Osiris was fond of music and the dance, so he took with him a multitude of musicians. Among these were nine maidens who could sing, and these maidens were those whom the Greeks called the Muses. End quote. So Osiris, or Dionysus, was fond of music, and the famous Muses and Satyrs, the archetypal composers and dancers, were part of his entourage. This made music a part of Osiris's realm and his responsibility, at least in the minds of Greek writers. The final god who had a musical habit was the great Bess. Bess, master of home life and protector of children, often appears in art associated with music. In particular, Bess appears in reliefs of the Ptolemaic or Greek period, and here he is often associated with melody. Worshippers play tambourines and harps in his honour, and sometimes the god himself gets in on the fun. In his characteristically impish form, Bess can be seen playing lyres and dancing. In this respect, he is a lot like the Greek satyrs, and more than one scholar has suggested that the satyrs may have been influenced by the Egyptian Bess. 
If that's true, it would be another link between the traditions of Egypt and those of Dionysus, or Osiris. So Bess was part of the larger musical group, the god-musicians who reveled in song, melody, and dance. These musical gods are a select pantheon, to which, I say, we can add a few mortal figures. Among the beings who might have ascended to musical godhood, I would include names like Miles Davis, Michael Jackson, Boccherini, and Noodle of the band Gorillaz. These great figures, mostly dead, are surely enjoying the patronage of Osiris and being lauded for their skills throughout eternity. The great gods of music, Hathor, Merit, Thoth, Osiris, and Bess, are powerful figures in the pantheon, and their influence was felt in every corner of the land. Whether it was dancing and singing, or the playing of instruments for pleasure, these musician deities were a potent force in the pantheon. In life, music was an equally powerful force. Let's take a look at how that music was made, specifically, the instruments which have survived, and what they tell us about the ancient songs. I mentioned earlier how music can be made in five ways. Clapping, singing, drumming, plucking strings, and blowing through pipes. Clapping and singing are natural to the human form. But drumming, plucking, and blowing? These require tools. Fortunately, a range of instruments survive in the archaeological record. And we are able to look at the flutes, harps, trumpets, and rattles of the ancient Egyptian players. Let's start with the flute. Ancient Egyptian flutes came in two varieties. One was a long pipe blown at one end, just like a modern flute. The other was a short pipe played in pairs. We call this latter one the double reed, and it may have sounded a bit like the modern oboe. The oboe tends to appear in religious contexts, where a priestess would play the instrument while a priest made offerings to the gods. It's possible that the oboe was meant to replace a human singer. The priest needed to concentrate on their words, so they couldn't have someone singing in the background. Or perhaps the oboe player was there to offer some melody and song in a sacred space, allowing music to sound without interrupting the ritual. Egyptian flutes were generally made of reeds, specifically cane reeds called arundo donax. This plant, often called bamboo, is the go-to plant for musical instruments. It is a manageable size, about 1 to 4 centimetres wide, and is extremely common in the Nile Valley. Technically, arundo donax is a weed, so the cane is abundant and easily accessed. On top of all that, it's durable. This excellent combination made cane reeds the standard material for Egyptian flute instruments. We're not exactly sure how the ancient flute sounded. Only a few examples survive, and they haven't been tested. But we do have a direct descendant, a form of flute that is called the ney. The ney flute is the instrument of modern Egypt, and it is played by many musicians working within the Arabic tradition. Here is an example of the ney played outside during the early morning hours. Perhaps an ancient flute sounded something like this.
So that may be this basic sound of the Egyptian flute. The melody is hypothetical, but that breathy, shimmering wind is as close as we can readily get to the ancient sound. The modern Ney flute is a lovely instrument, and it is descended from the ancient piece. We will hear this flute again in a few moments. The flute appears in many musical scenes. The flautists are both male and female, although they play in segregated groups, almost never mixed gender. The flautists have a very distinctive style depending on the period. In the Old Kingdom, we see male flautists playing long reeds held to their mouth like the modern flute. They rest on their knees, holding the flute across the body, and they play alongside their colleagues. In the New Kingdom, we see female players holding shorter flutes, but two at a time, one in each hand. Obviously, having two melodies at once would be a bit tricky, so it's possible that the usual method was to play a sort of drone on one flute and the higher melody on the other. Kind of like a bagpipe today, you have that low note underneath everything, and then the more complex stuff goes on top. This is just a theory, but it would be a more straightforward way than trying to do two performances at once. Anyway, the flautists usually appear alongside other musicians, who keep time by clapping, or add more complexity with lyres or harps. A lovely, simple piece from the Old Kingdom shows a male flautist seated, holding a long flute, while behind him, a man claps along. In another scene, we have a flautist, a clapper, and a harpist, all playing together in a trio. Again, these Old Kingdom musicians are all male, and it's possible that the professions were originally gender-exclusive. This is hard to say, but the art scenes certainly seem to indicate some degree of segregation. Now one thing we don't see very often is the flautists playing alongside any drums. Drums are relatively rare in the domestic or religious scenes. They tend to appear with the military more often. Flutes, meanwhile, seem to be for more intimate settings, banquets, recreation, and temple worship. More often, flutes are accompanied by clapping than by drums, at least as far as the artwork suggests. That being said, a bit of soft drumming with light fingers can go very well with the modern ney flute. We'll hear a performance of that sound now, to get a sense of how this may occasionally have been performed in the past. So that's a modern Egyptian flute and drum, but the principle might be similar for the ancients in some circumstances. Light drumming or clapping to give the flute some structure. The melody takes centre stage, and a wonderful sound is produced. The flautists are usually depicted in social settings, rather than big public affairs. Perhaps the flute was too quiet for large processions. After all, in a parade, the drums and trumpets would drown out most of the softer sounds. So when we see flutes, we see them in social gatherings, banquet halls, that kind of thing. Alongside them is the harp. Harps, or bennet, 
were common from the Old Kingdom all the way to the Ptolemaic era. More than two and a half thousand years of musicianship developed with this instrument. The harp, perhaps, is the quintessential elite instrument. Expensive to make, difficult to learn, and prestigious in composition. We know an awful lot about the Bennett harp, and have many surviving examples. The problem is, we still have no idea how it sounded. The Bennett harp was made of wood, curved in a shallow bow. At the bottom, which rested on the ground or the lap, a large bowl shape was covered with a thin membrane to create a hollow space. This resonating chamber gave much of the sound from the harp. The rest of the instrument was wood, like sycamore, and it could range from 50 centimeters long to as tall as a seated person. They were decorated with images of gods, animals, or kings, and were often painted as well. These were prestigious instruments, expensive and rare. The Egyptian harp had between four and nine strings. This would have given it a reasonable range of notes, but we have no idea how those strings were tuned. The strings on the surviving instruments have long since decayed, and figuring out the tightness of the tuning screws is guesswork at best. In theory, the harp could have been tuned to a variety of pitches for different settings, but we just have no idea what was used when. Reconstructing the harp is simple enough in outline, but getting the sound is still completely hypothetical. With that ambiguity in mind, some musicians have made efforts to revive these instruments, and we can now hear a sample of this work on a reconstructed harp. Once again, the melody and scale is hypothetical, but here is a wonderful evocation of those ancient sounds. The harp appears in domestic settings, banquets, social gatherings, and relaxation. The harpist often shows up along with the flautist and the clapper, and they may have worked together as a kind of trio. These pleasurable entertainments are common in the tomb paintings. As part of the deceased's eternal joys, images of music, feasting, dancing, and drinking adorn the hidden chambers. When they occur, these tomb scenes are usually accompanied by a caption, which says something like, quote, Sitting down to divert the heart with a holiday, in the interior of the house of eternity. In another one it says, quote, Sitting down in the hall to divert the heart according to the practice of existence on earth, perfumed with myrrh, adorned with garlands, making a holiday in his house of justification, which he made for himself in the west of Thebes. End quote. Captions like these, along with the harpers themselves, indicate that the afterlife was ideally a place of music, perfumes, and holiday. The listener was encouraged to take comfort in their pleasures, and to, for a moment, forget the greater cares of the world.
The harp was a popular form of entertainment. During the childhood of King Amunhotep II, who lived around 1430 BCE, a royal official had a tomb scene carved which showed him educating the young Amunhotep when he was still a prince. As the child prince sits on the official's knee, a number of servants enter the scene. One of them is carrying a lyre or lute, and the scene bears the caption, quote, Diverting the heart and seeing good things, song, dance, and music, rejoicing and gladness of heart. End quote. Such a scene is a nice reminder of the pleasures of life. Found in a tomb, it reminisces on the joyous days of the happy time in which the tomb owner was still on earth. It is enhanced even more by what the singers themselves sing to the young prince and the tomb owner. In a caption above the scene, hieroglyphs lay out the player's song. Quote, How prosperous are they, these years which the God decrees! May you pass them, endowed with blessing, happy and healthy. You exist, your voice is justified, and your enemy is fallen. You are in the house, united with eternity, partaking of everlastingness. End quote. The music of daily life becomes the music of eternity, and from the singer's words, we get a glimpse at the ideal afterlife. It is a life filled with song. The harp and the flute, together with clapping, were the quintessential sound of ancient musical performances. At least, that was the case in social and domestic settings. But when you get to the public realm, things change quite a bit. We're now going to look at two more instruments used primarily in temple and military contexts. First of all, let's look at the sistrum. No discussion of music is complete without talking about the most Egyptian of instruments, the sistrum. Sistrum rattles made of bronze were the religious instrument of choice for priestesses and priests in the service of the gods. Sistra and Egyptian religion go hand in hand, and the sound is synonymous with the pharaonic world. Within the temple environments, a special class of worshipper served as the musicians of the gods. Every morning, these priestesses entered the sanctuary, and with a special rattle, they awoke the sleeping deities. That rattle sounded like this. That shimmering shesheshe sound is the sistrum. The word sistrum is Greek. The Egyptian's name for this instrument is sesheshet. As you can guess, that name is an onomatopoeia. It is pronounced how it sounds. Made of bronze, and usually decorated with an image of Hathor, the Seshashet Sistrum was the preeminent instrument of temple liturgy. There were actually two types of sistrum in Egypt. They're essentially the same, except for different decorations and names. The Seshashet Sistrum was shaped like a Hathor head, topped with a sort of gate or doorway. That gate, or naos, was the head of the sistrum, and metal poles stuck through it, which held the rattling pieces of bronze. The second type of sistrum is called the sekem, 
And this is the sistrum that you probably imagine. It has a handle, a Hathor head, and then a tall curved archway with bands of metal in between. If you glance at the Sekim sistrum casually, you might mistake it for an Ankh symbol. The Sekim, or powerful sistrum, made the same sound as the Sashashet, and the two often appear together, one in each hand. We're not sure why there are two types, or what the exact significance is. If I had to guess, I might suggest that they had something to do with the two facets or aspects of Hathor. On the one hand, the Seshashet might have appealed to the goddess in her temple where she was at peace. The Sekem, on the other hand, might have appealed to Hathor's alternate personality, Sekmet, the powerful lady. It's just an idea, a guess really, but the name Sekem does make me think of Sekmet, and if there is ever a goddess who needed placating with the soothing sound of a rattle, it might be that goddess. The sistrum was exclusively religious. We never see it in domestic settings, only in the temple or funerary rites. It is used by priests and priestesses, and in its sacred jingle, the sistrum provided the foundation of chanting, song, and invocation. Once again, modern musicians have made attempts to reconstruct the sound, and the following piece is an attempt to evoke the ancient ritual through a reconstructed Egyptian liturgy. The words are Egyptian, accompanied by the rattle of sistra. temple singer or chantress would shake the sistrum during her morning ritual and her daily worship. The sistrum was metal and a set of short poles held metal coins or clappers, a bit like castanets that would rattle when shook. That's what made that shesheshe, and this sound was thought to awaken the divinities and alert them to human worship. As you can imagine, the sistrum was an essential part of the priest and priestess's job. The sistrum is an emblem of Hathor. It bears her image, and music more generally was associated with her. The singers themselves evoked the goddess in song, and a good example of this comes from around 2000 BCE, when a singer performed a short ditty for the great goddess. Quote, My body says and my lips repeat, Holy music for Hathor, music a million times. Because you love music, a million times music for you. End quote. The music for Hathor was sung by harp, by flute, and by sistrum. The sound of voices giving praise to the goddess must have been pleasing to her heart. Surely it was a great way to invoke her benevolence, or to placate her anger. Hathor, the lady of music, was the preeminent deity. 
offering gods to her glory, was part and parcel of the musical norm. The sistrum, as I said, is purely a ceremonial instrument. We only see it in religious contexts and never in private performances. This is probably intentional. Sacred sounds are just that, sacred. And you don't want to profane the divine ambience by removing it from its primary context. In other words, the sistrum and worship cannot be separated. The last instruments of note are the drum and the trumpet. These were instruments played by men exclusively, and they mainly appear in the context of military processions. Occasionally a drum shows up in the temple or at a banquet. The trumpet, though, is only played by soldiers. Part of that is probably the noise. Trumpets are shrill, drums are booming, and while they complement each other quite nicely, they might overshadow other instruments. So the trumpet and drum seem to have been kept mainly in the military sphere, where their bombastic tones and rhythms could excite the soldiers and get the blood pumping ready for action. We don't know much about drummers, but we do know that they practiced hard. Around 1560 BCE, during the 17th dynasty, a man named Amhab, or In Celebration, became a military drummer in the army of King Karmosa. Amhab was a practitioner of the barrel-shaped drum, which was called a kemkem. Kemkem, another of those nice onomatopoeic names, were made of wooden boards glued and laced together into a barrel shape rounded and excellently acoustic. Kemkem were played by hand, not with sticks, and from the biography of the drummer Emhab, we can get a sense of how much work went into being an ancient military performer. Emhab tells us of his life, quote, I was one who served his lord on his journeys, who was not cowardly over any command his lord gave. I filled my two hands with my agile strength. I competed with a rival in drumming, and said, I, Hemhab, shall compete with him in long pieces. I defeated him with my fingers, making seven thousand measures on the drum. Then I spent three years striking the drums every single day. End quote. Emhab proved his skills as a drummer by outlasting his rival in performance. Seven thousand measures of drumming we're not sure how many beats that is, cinched for Emhab the position of military drummer in King Karmos' army. From there, Emhab was the drummer on campaign, and for three years he played every day to inspire and order the soldiers in their tasks. A tale like Emhab's gives us a tiny glimpse of the ancient military drummer. They worked hard, practicing and performing regularly, to hone their skills and establish a degree of stamina that you would be hard-pressed to find today. From this little story, we get a wonderful sense of an ancient drummer's life.
The other military instrument was the trumpet. Trumpets, or shenab, appear in temple reliefs and military scenes. Only two physical pieces of these instruments survive. Around 1315 BCE, a pair of trumpets were buried in the tomb of a minor king named Tutankhamun. These delicate pieces, one copper, one silver, were recovered by Howard Carter, and in the 1930s, a military sergeant was permitted to play them live on the BBC. This is the first and last time the trumpets were ever played. In a moment, we will hear them. The two trumpets of Tutankhamun have noticeably different tones. The silver one is much higher than the copper. Played at the same time, they might have made a complementary sound, in the same way that a flute could be played low and high depending on the circumstances. In the context of a military procession, such trumpets would have rung out clear and shrill, and provided a clarion call for all to hear. I won't keep you in suspense. Allow me to present the only time when an ancient Egyptian instrument has been played for the modern world to hear. The trumpets of the pharaoh Tutankhamun, lord of the crowns, king of the south and north, son of bread. was the silver trumpet of King Tutankhamun. We will hear the copper one when we reach that king in the narrative. Trumpets, sistra, harps, and flutes. These were the tools of the ancient musicians. Along with drums and clapping, they formed the basic elements of Egyptian music in its various forms. Whether it was the military parade, the temple ritual, or the domestic recital, Music came in different forms, and had different purposes. But in every major sphere of life, music was part of the daily rhythm. There is another instrument, of course, one which every human possesses to some degree. I'm talking about the voice. Singers were found in every sphere of Egyptian life, from the chantresses in the temple, to the chorus of warriors on the march, and the soloist or trio performing at a party. Traces of these professionals and their work survives today, and in the next part, we're going to meet the singers of Egyptian songs.
Music was everywhere in daily life, in different settings and different functions. Although we cannot hear the melodies anymore, we can at least see some of the words which the ancients sang. Thanks to good preservation, a number of tomb and temple reliefs give us the lyrics to Egyptian compositions. In this second part, we'll take a brief look at the songs of Pharaonic Egypt. Music was frequently performed for the great gods. In the temple, priestesses with their sistra would sing songs to the divine glory. Gods like Osiris and Hathor enjoyed music, and in the Egyptian mind, the act of singing was connected with the idea of praise. We know this is the case because the word for praise and the word for song are the same. To praise is hesi. To sing is also hesi. So the words are cognate, and there is probably a conceptual link with praise or singing emerging from the same root. If that sounds strange at all, just remember, if you want to applaud someone today, you might sing their praises. So the words for praise and song are written as chesi. From that root, we also get the word for male and female singers, which are chesu and chesit, respectively. Curiously, there are no words for the musicians themselves, no word for harpist or flautist or drummer. They describe the act of playing music, such as playing a harp, but no separate word for the actual musician. It's curious, but there it is. The temple singers would sing the praises of gods, rattling their sesheshet and sekem sistra as they did so. The rattling metal echoed in the cavernous halls and darkened sanctuaries, and the chantresses called glories to the great gods. One particularly good example is a song of praise for Hathor, again emphasizing that goddess's importance to music as an art. Although the melody of this song is lost, the lyrics survive today, and they go like this. Quote, Come, make jubilation for the gold, Hathor, and good pleasure for the lady of the two lands, that she may cause the pharaoh Neb Ma'at Re, given life to be enduring. Come, arise, come, that I may make for you jubilation at twilight and music in the evening. O Hathor, you are exalted in the hair of Ray, in the hair of Ray, for to you has been given the sky, the deep night, and the stars. Great is her majesty when she is happy. End quote. I won't dishonor this song or your ears by trying to sing it. Suffice to say, singing in praise, or chesi im chesi, would have been a splendid thing. High voices, sistrum rattles, clapping, and the melody of harps. Songs like this were an adornment to the great goddess. Beyond the walls of the temple, songs were also sung in domestic settings, particularly at banquets and private recitals. There are many of these songs which survive in traces, but the most complete and the most famous is known as the Song of the Harper. The Song of the Harper survives in a number of different records, which vary slightly in their lyrics or their subjects. The most noteworthy feature of the Song of the Harper is what the various songs encourage the listener to do. Broadly speaking, these have a focus on the idea that you should count your blessings while you are alive. 
The Song of the Harper in its various forms focuses on pleasure, indulgence, and on staying present in the moment of life. After all, death is always a shadow on the horizon, and the singer reminds their audience to enjoy life while they can. The most famous example of the Song of the Harper comes from a tomb built around 2000 BCE for a man named Intef. This Intef may have been a nomarch or king during the first intermediate period, but that is beside the point. What is important is how the song offers a startling critique of some very old ideas. The song of the harper begins like this, quote, Fortunate is this prince, for happy was his fate, and happy his ending. One generation passes away, and the next remains, ever since the time of those of old. The gods who existed before me now rest in their tombs, and the blessed nobles also are buried in their tombs. But as for the builders of these tombs, their places are no more. What has become of them? I have heard the words of Imhotep and Horjedef, whose maxims are repeated intact as proverbs. But what of their chapels, their walls are in ruins, and their places are no more, as if they had never existed. End quote. This song is interesting. It offers a direct, cynical challenge to the ideas of eternity and immortality. It decries the collapse of funerary cults, and how even the wisest sage is eventually forgotten. Tombs decay, monuments crumble, and the singer watches as everything that is good is slowly lost, as if it had never been. Think about that for a second. A literate Egyptian, part of the most famous tomb-building culture ever, vocally critiques the notion of eternal rest, and describes how the monuments of great men, as famous as Imhotep or Hor-Jedev, are mere dust in the face of time. Four thousand years before Shelley wrote Ozymandias, the anonymous Harper reflected on grandiosity and its inability to endure decay. That is unexpected. The first part of the Song of the Harper offers a fascinating challenge to Egypt's most famous tradition. While a thousand years of tomb building and monumental architecture testify to their hopes for the afterlife, the singer flips that and views the situation from a far more cynical perspective. It is surprising to say the least. The harpist's motivation is easy to unpack once we go a little further into the song. The musician is brought to this point by reflecting on the nature of life and its end, of how mortality robs us of all experience, and the veil of death remains, despite our efforts, totally impenetrable. Confronted with this barrier, the singer reflects, quote, There is no one who returns from beyond, that he may tell of their state, that he may tell of their lot, that he may set our hearts at ease, until we make our journey to the place where they have gone. End quote. These criticisms are really incongruous, considering that they're written in a tomb. Also ironic, because this is the most famous song to survive from Egyptian culture. Whoever this anonymous harpist was, 
They achieved a degree of immortality few songwriters can hope for. So there's sort of a contradiction going on here from our perspective. Even as we unpack the cynical lyrics, we are proving their core message wrong. Before we think it's all doom and gloom, that cynical introduction soon gives way to the real message of this song. After noting that the old sages like Imhotep and Horjadef are gone, the singer reflects on death more generally, and also what that shadow of mortality teaches us for the here and now. Quote, Rejoice your heart, absence of care is good for you. Follow your heart as long as you live. Let your pleasures increase, and let not your heart grow weary. Follow your heart and your happiness. Conduct your affairs on earth as your heart dictates. For that day of mourning will surely come for you. The weary-hearted does not hear their lamentations, and their weeping does not rescue a man's heart from the grave. End quote. We should imagine this song being played to an audience, either a gathering or the master by himself. These kind of melancholic words are not what you'd call a stadium anthem, unless it's the end of Bohemian Rhapsody. But they are perfectly at home in an environment of contemplation, relaxation, and consumption. The singer's words are possibly meant to underscore the general levity of a party, to put a layer of melancholy at the bottom so that the audience can remember to make each moment count. Like the drone of one reed on the flute, the harpist's song is the foundation for the party, a touch of sombre reflection so that you appreciate the pleasures more. That's my interpretation of it anyway. There's been considerable debate about where this song was played and what its purpose exactly was. For early Egyptologists in the 1800s, there was nothing like this in secular literature, and they assumed that the song of the harper was something played at a funeral or in a tomb chapel. In this interpretation, the song is a lament for mortality and an exhortation to enjoy life once you leave the sacred space and return to the world of the living. This interpretation has fallen away a bit, and the harper songs are now recognized as a more wide-reaching corpus that could be adapted to different situations for different audiences. Out of the dozen or so examples which survive of the song, they all share a common thread, and that thread can be summarized as follows. Quote, Enjoy pleasant times, and do not weary thereof. Behold, it is not given to any man to take his belongings with him. Behold, there is no one departed who will return again. End quote. The songs of the harper have been called Eat, Drink, and Be Merry songs, and the idea isn't too far off the mark. Mortality is normally a mere shadow in the mind's eye, carefully avoided. The singer of the song brings it to the forefront, confronts you with it, and he combines that confrontation with the true message. If life is short, it must be treasured. You can't take anything with you, and you won't return. So enjoy it now, and long may your pleasures on this earth endure. I have a lot more to say about Egyptian music, and I will certainly do a Songs of Praise too at some point in the future. Now that we've looked at ancient instruments and songs, 
I wanted to get a sense of how a musician in the modern era might go about reconstructing or evoking the soundscape of ancient Egypt. In the next mini-episode, I conduct an interview with Mr. Jeffrey Goodman, a composer who has done a number of works evoking the soundscape of ancient Egypt and used ideas from their myths and their history to give a wonderful sense of place and song. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode. This is part two of our look at music, and it is an interview with a composer named Jeffrey Goodman. Jeffrey is a composer primarily for the classical guitar, but he has prepared one album and a number of other songs, evoking the world of ancient Egypt. In order to get a better understanding of things like ancient instruments that have been reconstructed in the modern era, I asked Jeffrey to join me for an interview in order to discuss his approach to evoking that ancient world. Along the way, we discuss things like the scales that the Egyptians might have used, the various instruments which we have recovered, and what those indicate about their compositions. Now, the music of the past is gone, and since the ancient Egyptians have not left any surviving notation or rhythms, we're unable to reconstruct the melodies that they did play. But we're not totally in the dark. Because ancient instruments have survived, these can be studied and copied, and by looking at replicas of those instruments, we can at least get a very basic understanding of what the instruments were capable of and what sounds they made. From this, we can do some attempts at reconstruction, and Jeffrey Goodman has approached this much more carefully than many others. So, Sit back and enjoy a short interview with Jeffrey Goodman, composer, and a number of songs which he has prepared evoking the ancient world of Egypt. This interview has been edited for time and content, and I've also re-recorded my questions in between. So first of all, I should say hello, Jeffrey, and thank you for joining the show. You're most welcome. I appreciate the invitation. In order to 
reconstruct or evoke the ancient world, how do you approach your composition? Do you start with the instruments or a particular melody that you want to evoke? What's the start of your compositional process? That's a very remarkable process for me. I don't know, I don't know if the word process is quite right because a composition can start anywhere and go anywhere or go nowhere. So what happens with me is that there is a literally a, a moment that can be less than one second where I may see an image or may hear something, and that's the seed of a whole composition or a number of them. Visually, for some reason, I'm very, very reactive to those things. So when you go into, for instance, a Baroque cathedral, the architecture is in its own way, has a resonance to Baroque music. And so there's an experience in space that uh, a composer like Bach, when he was composing, his music, his religious music in particular, was not imitating it, but was of a, fa a cultural and artistic and fabric of consciousness that had a kind of a union with that. So for me, when I look at these images, I start to see, have this sense of there's a musical form. I had a very nice time looking at all the different illustrations of harp. They're wonderful, those beautiful images of ladies, some of my favorite images, where there are, I think, three ladies walking and they're in wonderful um, postures and one may be holding an old lyre or a flute, a sistrum and so forth. Certain, so the pieces that I play, although you can't see uh, a hieroglyphic tablet or one of these great images, but there are certain elements of, of space and repetition that are non-Western, they're non-European, but they are something that um, makes sense in terms of musical form as we see it today. So for a composer hoping to bring the ancient world to life in a specifically musical context, one of the things that they can look at is the artwork of the culture itself, then the instruments that that culture has left behind. And by holistically interpreting those two things, along with some fundamental understanding of scales and rhythm, a composer like Jeff Goodman can, at the very least, give a basic sound for ancient Egypt. It might not be the sound that the ancients themselves made, but it's as close as we can reasonably hope to achieve in the modern world with, you know, three millennia separating us from their rhythms. With that in mind, I'm going to start playing some of Jeffrey's music. This will be interspersed throughout the episode, and I think you'll be able to hear for yourself the wonderful attempts he's made to evoke an authentic and evocative piece of ancient Egyptian music. Thank you. 
So of course, ancient Egypt is not the only culture to have made music. What kind of information can we glean from other societies or cultures that might give us an idea of the Egyptian sounds? Uh, interestingly, every culture, everyone has music. And in music, there are very different scales that are used in different cultures, but all music has the octave and the perfect fifth. And that's because when you, when you hit something, if you hit a string or a pipe, it'll have its fundamental frequency. And then at twice that frequency, there is an overtone that everyone hears. Everyone hears the first several overtones. So all cultures, all musical cultures have that. After that, all bets are off. The classical Indian music may have th minimum of 31 tones to the octave. We have a chromatic scale of 12 tones to the octave, at least on the piano. And so in order to do anything with Egyptian, the idea of Egyptian music, I was thinking about it for a long time. And I thought the very best indicator of at least something would be flutes, because the flutes that have the holes, you can play those holes. And at least for that time in that place, you can find a scale of some kind that that corresponds to. And, and as I was first starting, I on this, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I don't know why, but I think the Aeolian pentatonic is the scale that maybe they used in ancient Egypt. And about two months later, I read an article that said they found a flute and it was an Aeolian pentatonic scale. For the benefit of my listeners, what is an Aeolian pentatonic scale? Okay, so if you think of a minor scale, most European scales are called diatonic scales, and that's a seven note scale. Pentatonic means five, and pentatonic is extremely widespread. Japanese and Chinese scales are often that. So some of my early pieces were focused on the intervals and the relationships that you could get with a pentatonic scale. Okay, so the basic starting point is the scale and what we can evoke from that particular with the restrictions that we are aware of. How do you apply that to the instruments that we know the ancient Egyptians had? But I, I think, I suppose the most important starting point, which is very liberating in some sense, and also very constraining at the same time, is that there is no surviving music notation from ancient Egypt. Uh, written evidence would be, of course, tremendously welcome. So the, the scales are very important. And so, so flutes, flutes are really good. And so many of the drawings are very realistic. They're not just cartoonish. So what I would do is, of course, I would count the strings if there's 18 strings. And just using, just using graphics, if you, take, if you take a certain note, let's say the string is this tall and you measure it as 12 inches or a subset proportion of that, and I find that string, which is half that length, that is at least metaphorically the octave. So if that's the case, and I did this with a bunch of harps, some of them are full length, like orchestral harps, a lot of them are handheld harps. So they're all different pitch ranges, but a lot of them are about, uh, let's just say about 18 notes. And that often is like an octave and a half. So that would give me a pitch range that has a limited number of strings, but in on my computer and with my keyboards, I'm not going to write a part like Ravel or Debussy that goes sweeping three octaves up because that wouldn't have existed. 
So when you ask about is the music, am I thinking about historic, with the caveat that there's no there's no evidence as to text, still some ideas of scale and some ideas of instrument range can be there. That makes sense. So even if we don't have some form of ancient notation, we can still look at the instruments, their physical form, at least as far as they're reconstructed. And from that, we can get a sense of what that instrument is actually capable of in terms of sound. So the piece that we just heard was complex, with horns, percussion in low and high sounds, uh, flutes and reed instruments. How did that kind of orchestral sound come together? The other thing that's, that I didn't know until I started this is that in, ancient, in the ancient Egypt and the span of it, every instrumental group that's in a Western orchestra existed in, in, the, in instruments of that time. Of course, there's a huge range of percussion, but there were flute-like instruments. There were, there were reed instruments like oboes or like clarinets. There were stringed instruments like harps and lyres and uh, percussion. And there were also kind of brass type of instruments. So there's a lot, there's a lot there to choose from. One type is, a, is called a double reed. It's still used in some places. Now, normally what that suggests musically to me is that one reed was probably just a single note, like a low note that was used as a drone on the bottom and that they would then vary the notes above that. There's a partic- particularly famous tomb painting with a woman playing a double reed of some sort. Yeah, so one person's playing, kind of like in a bagpipe, you have some certain notes that you just have droning and then the, the little pipes are putting a melody above that. So by looking at the physical form of an ancient flute, a composer can get a sense of how it might have been played. And when you couple that with artistic representations, like we saw in the recent mini-episode, you get a greater understanding of the sort of rhythms or melodies that might have been played on these particular instruments. Here's an example of how Jeff brings that to life.
You mentioned the span of ancient Egyptian history. Of course, we're talking about millennia, you know, vast timescales. How would that affect your approach to evoking their music? When you say ancient Egyptian, you're talking about thousands of years. And so it's not a unitary, it's, it, it is by its nature not something unitary, that there was no uniformity. In, in European culture, just the note A was not standardized to 440 cycles per second until late in the 19th century. So when Bach, when Bach was performing music in different cities, he had to know that if it was a cantata, like a sacred composition with the, with the town organ, he had to know what the pitch of that organ was. And sometimes it was a half step higher or lower and we know that he knew that because when he wrote out the musical parts, he would take his original and he would transpose it so the musicians could play with the organ. So this is this is recent, very recent. And there are many, many aspects of that. What are the sort of traps that you think might catch a composer who's looking to evoke the ancient world? You know, what what sort of things do you need to avoid when you're doing this? Part of what's important to me from the historic point of view, is to not do certain things. There are a lot of choices that, that are the absence of certain kinds of things. Instruments that weren't at all at that time. I wish I could have uh, my Stradivarius violin and my, and my oboe and my English horn because I can put that in my other music, but I can't, I can't use those in these pieces. And see, these limits are actually positive things from a composing standpoint, because when you have no scores of pieces, it's entirely just a point of imagination, but you have to delimit it. You have to do it that way. So one of the great challenges in approaching ancient music is what you can't put in. And this is a trap that I've found many composers do stumble into. In their quest to create a piece that is both authentic, but also entertaining and engaging for the modern ear, the temptation sometimes seems to be quite strong to include instruments that are anachronistic or could not possibly have existed in the ancient world. Most of the time this isn't really a problem because you're listening to the music to enjoy it, but if you're trying to get an understanding of ancient melody by a modern reconstruction, things like that can be real barriers to full appreciation of what the ancients were working with. Jeffrey has also composed a number of variations on what might be called different hymns. In the next piece, we're going to hear a wonderful interpretation of how a priesthood in a temple might have approached the worship of two different gods. In this case, we're talking about a song dedicated to the royal god Horus and the fearsome lioness Sarkmet. This is Jeff Goodman's War Song. Thank you. 
I love that piece. I just think it's really great fun and a really wonderful sound of how a priesthood might have approached a hymn to particularly fearsome and powerful gods. Jeffries composed a number of compositions on varying themes from Egyptian mythology and religious life in particular. As we saw in the recent mini-episode, music in ancient Egypt fundamentally had a divine character. There were gods who had given order to the universe through the playing of melodies and rhythms. So naturally, a composer like Jeffrey, who strives for some degree of authenticity, has gone to the well of mythology repeatedly in order to draw different compositions out. Now, you've made one album of Egyptian evocative music, if you will. Do you plan to revisit those particular sounds, or do you think you're done? I'm I'm just in the midst of, uh, I'm doing a complete new working on a triptych there'll be three pieces together that um one of the pieces the pieces i've just virtually completed it's not fully mastered is uh the lamentation of isis and her sister how, how would you pronounce the sister's name nephthys i say i say nephthys nephthys yeah i see different spellings and i would really not want to appear in front of her and mispronounce her name so in this one, there's a singer on the left speaker who is Isis, and the singer on the right speaker who is Nephthys, and they each have um, an expression of lamentation about the death of Osiris. And then at the end, they're going to be singing a kind of a duet or doing a duet. But then there will also be a first piece that will depict the death of um, the murder of Osiris by Seth, and then uh, the third one is resurrection. So murder, lament, lamentation, resurrection is an awfully <laughs> intriguing set of things. It's something that's that I'm I've just been obsessed by it, and and I now have the I have the musical tools in my in my studio that I think that I, I couldn't have done this a few years ago, but now I have tools that allow me to to do those things and. One of the great things that I have in my in my library, and some real geniuses have been able to, you have a choir, and instead of singing O or A or E, you can actually put in a phonetic text and have them sing it. So I can have, in my first album, I had, there was a war song of um, Horus and Sekhmet. And so when you hear that, these are, these are who knows how they're actually pronounced, I certainly wouldn't. But you're hearing a choir not singing La and A, but they're singing whatever the phonetic texts I could get, um, they're singing phrases that are, that relate to the ancient texts. So, quite wonderfully, Jeffrey has now tackled the mythological death of Osiris and the aftermath. There is a famous written record of the lament of Isis and Nephthys on the death of their brother-slash-lover-slash-husband Osiris. This survives from the New Kingdom, particularly things like the Book of the Dead, and Geoffrey has used that text to great effect. So, we're now going to listen to an excerpt of the Lament of Isis and Nephthys on the Death of Osiris.
What a lovely piece. I find it very evocative and really enjoyable to listen to. That brings us to the end of the formal interview, the discussion of ancient Egyptian music and how it is evoked in the modern day. But stick around for a few more minutes, because Jeffrey and I now had a bit of a chit-chat about his career, which spans decades, and there are some really wonderful anecdotes about working in music around the world, and it's just a really interesting discussion all round. So if you're just here for the Egyptian music, this is where you can hop off. But stick around, and I think you'll really enjoy the chat. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you are a classical guitarist, primarily. How did you how did you develop into that, and what what led you down that path in particular? Just as a, a teenager, uh, my my brother and sisters played musical instruments, and I was never interested in any instrument until uh, I wasn't interested to play the piano or the violin. But one day I heard a recording that was in my parents' collection of uh, Andre Segovia playing guitar. And, and then I knew I wanted to play that. So it was just an instant connection to that. And that just, to my surprise, or not with any expectation, that developed, that continued to develop over um, to this day, really. And I've been very, I was very fortunate. I spent quite a few years uh, teaching classical guitar at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, and um, have been guest professor in other places, um, had wonderful experiences in performing around the world, also for some soundtracks and things for movies, because in Los Angeles there's things like that that occur. So. So the guitar was, has always been and still is a very central part of my music. Um, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you ran music festivals in Vienna for a few years. What does that look like? What does that experience entail, broadly speaking? How do you how do you run a music festival? That in, that involves uh, having a good supply of um, aspirin and Tylenol. Uh, <laughs> Coincidentally, that's how podcasting works too. <laughs> uh, I was I was a young faculty member at UCLA, and with the platform of of the school, uh, I reached out and um, was able to find some music promoters in Vienna, who put together fantastic festivals at the Vienna Conservatory. We did concerts at the American Embassy. I played a solo concert in what's called Palais Palfi, which is a place where Mozart had performed when he was there. And um, there were wonderful experiences. So we had students, we brought a group of students uh, from UCLA, and then we met with uh, mostly Austrian musicians, some Hungarian musicians, and um, we had concerts and various events. And it was a really, really great things to do, very, very difficult things. And, and in those days, it was all done with letters. So I would write a letter and every, there was nothing that that happened in less than two or three weeks. <laughs> so there were long letters, but there were I was dealing with people on the other side of the um, of the ocean that were competent and reliable people, fortunately. So um, so that's you know, that's how that came about. 
Today, of course, it's very different. You know, I can fire you an email and within 20 seconds it's arrived at your your computer and we can communicate directly, instantaneously, just through the medium of the internet. It's quite wonderful. Oh, completely. And the internet and music are so perfectly adapted one to the other that now I have a minimum of 20,000 people per month that are looking at my, just my YouTube channel and it's being listened to more than 24 hours a day somewhere all across the world and it's it's not live but it's but it is really remarkable and then that's allowed me to discover in the last few years how alive music is how many great musicians there are how many wonderful creative people are doing things of great significance that I would never have discovered were it not for these things. So Now, of course, Jeffrey releases his albums for sale and also on Spotify, and you'll find links to the pieces that were played today in the episode description. But Jeffrey, if my listeners want to get in touch with you or find more of your music, particularly your classical guitar and other ancient compositions, how can they do that and where can they find you? Well, um, the simplest thing is my music website, and it's called jeffreygoodmanmusic.com. And in it, it's kind of organized by CDs and publications and um, videos and so forth. So someone who has an interest, that's a good hub to go to to see if there's anything there that they want to select. Also, I do put a lot of materials for guitarists who, um, you know, like a PDF of a 19th century guitar method that's of historic significance. Not everyone knows that, that you can get those for free. So I put them there and people come from all over and they can download them and hopefully study them nicely. And with that, we'll say adieu. But please stick around to give your thanks to Jeff. Yeah, that, that essentially covers everything. So thank you very much for coming on and talking about um, ancient music or modern music as well. You're most welcome. For now, we will say goodbye to Jeff and round out the show with another wonderful piece that he composed, The Drums of Tutankhamun.
Hello everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Michael Levy, composer for Ancient Instruments. Michael has been a long-time friend of the podcast. He has generously donated many of his songs for me to use on the show, and I am incredibly grateful for his support. I sat down with Michael via Zoom to discuss his compositions for ancient Egyptian instruments. Michael plays a variety of instruments which are replicas of actual objects found in Egyptian tombs. As you will see, Michael is knowledgeable, personable, and very enthusiastic about his craft. Along the way, he also breaks down some of the songs which he has written, and explains the inspirations and how he approached them. It's a wonderful interview, and I hope you will enjoy. Hello, Michael Levy. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, and thank you very much for joining me. The pleasure is mine. It's a real privilege to talk about uh, my music and uh, how it connects, hopefully, with the ancient world. Well, it's a privilege to talk to you, and I personally am very grateful for the many hours of music you've allowed me to use free on the podcast, and I'm sure everyone listening is deeply grateful for the lovely songs. So thank you from myself and everyone. That's great. So, Michael, you've got a new album out called The Ancient Egyptian Liar. And some of the pieces on this are composed with, of course, replica instruments based on artifacts we have from ancient Egypt. Um, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit, just for a moment, about how this, this, new, this new album, this new composition of songs uh, came to be. Uh, yeah, um, well, for many years, I wanted to get hold of an authentic liar um, from the ancient Near East, and I did a bit of research and I found out that, yes, there was actually surviving liars from ancient Egypt. Um, mm. In particular, the one preserved in Leiden, which dates back to around 1500 BC, and it miraculously survives. And with a surviving wow. instrument, the fascinating thing is you have the actual dimensions of the instrument. Mm. Now, for, since 2014, I've had the pleasure of collaborating with... Um, some modern lyre makers in Greece called Lutherios. Hmm. And um, since it was approaching my 50th birthday, I thought, what can I do for my 50th birthday? Let's, let's, let's get a <laughs> custom-built lyre. So I sent them all the details um, about the Leiden lyre. And sure enough, they um, created this wonderful replica um, to the exact same dimensions as the um, extant lyre preserved in Leiden. Wow, fantastic. That's quite a birthday present. <laughs> Does this album follow from that particular instrument? Is it, are they all composed with this piece? Uh, yes, every single track um, was recorded. I'd, whenever I have a new lyre, I like to sort of demonstrate it in a permanent form of recording, um, hmm. which I think is the best way to catalogue the sound. Mm -hmm. um, you've got many, many albums based across ancient Egyptian and uh, Near Eastern and Greek and Roman instruments as well. Is there a particular instrument you find yourself coming back to a lot? I know you've used the harp and also the lyre and um, variations on those. Is there one that you particularly find suitable for you? Um, I feel very comfortable playing a 10-string lyre. Um, mm. And it doesn't matter what type. I mean, this custom model of the Leiden lyre I had um, Lutherius make with 10 strings. Um, I think the original had a, a slightly less, but I find that a little bit too limiting. And um, the funny thing is, 10 strings, um, that's the same number of strings 
that was on the biblical lyre, and this goes back to my interest in playing the lyre in the first place, because it was okay. the biblical Levites way mm. back in the Temple of Jerusalem that actually played the biblical lyres, the Kinor and the Nevel, and mm. as well as the biblical text that, that describes this, you also have the writings of Flavius Josephus, the first mm. century Jewish historian who actually saw the witness, the, actually witnessed the Levites play these lyres in the Temple of Jerusalem. So for me, playing the lyre, especially a ten-string lyre, is extreme roots music. <laughs> Fair enough too. And what are the what are the challenges of playing an instrument with that many strings? Is that do you find is it more variable or is it more complicated or both? It's a strange thing. Um, compared to a harp, a harp has obviously many almost the same number of notes as a piano. Mm. Um, whereas a lyre, you'd think it'd be very limiting, but um, the the beauty is the limitation. Um, in fact, the 10 strings, I find, are analogous to the 10 decades maximum in, on average that we have as our human lifespan. Okay, mm -hmm. we only have 10 decades maximum, approximately, but we can do infinite things with those 10 decades, and it's like the same with the lyre strings. You can do infinite, there's literally infinite possibilities that you can create from this rather minimalistic sound. And the... And for example, the advantage of having less strings than a harp, you can do these wonderful things, these... Um, we actually block certain strings and strum so you have almost like two instruments at once and, th and this st style of playing called block and strum is still practiced today throughout the african continent um where the lyre presumably arrived via trade routes with ancient egypt and is still being played happily today for example um the, the that lyre i think i mentioned the the, the, the um well, eritrean craw um which has this block and strum technique Oh, sounds fascinating. So do you intend to continue exploring instruments from uh, the various countries of Africa as well? Uh, yeah, well, the, the Egyptian lie, obviously, Egypt is a part of the African continent. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, this is my first experience of playing, well, really, a, an ancient African lyre. Um, mm. And just um, the, the, to do with the timbre of the instrument as well, um, I actually asked Lutherios to come up with a bridge very similar to the African lyres still played today. Um, and the difference between, say, a guitar bridge, which is very um, sharp and produces a very clear tone, if you listen to any African lyres still played today, and a good example of this is the Ethiopian, Ethiopian Begina, a 10-string lyre, a bass lyre. It has this wonderful buzzy timbre because the bridge on a lyre is basically, well, African lyres, they just use usually a piece of reed or something. Um, so it's instead of a sharp bridge, the, the strings can freely sort of bounce up um, and, res and, and buzz, I should say, on top of the bridge. But it creates this wonderful sitar-like ancient exotic timbre. And that's what I had done with this lyre. It has this buzzy timbre, which I found very evocative, and completely different than a modern harp, and much more interesting, to be honest. <laughs> and you mentioned in um, a conversation we had that you'd you'd uh, develop some of your compositional techniques for this uh, instrument based on musicians playing in Port Said on the Red Sea. Uh, yes, um, the tune I'm going to talk about, um, the Holy Nile. Mm. The actual melody, um, I got the idea from it after listening to musicians from Port Said um, who play the Sim Simia. Now, the Sim Simia is um, an amazing lyre. Again, one of these wonderful African lyres. And it goes back, well, it's obviously been modified a lot for the, for, 
for the modern player because um, mm. the modern version has metal strings originally it would right. have had foot but it, it actually goes back to pharaonic times the actual basis of this lyre and lots of the playing techniques i use um you know, do lots of tremolo sounds um which again is something wonderful you can do with the lyre which you can't really do with the harp mm. um so yeah it's this very distinctive tremolo timbre um i do quite a bit of as well as and what is a what is a tremolo timbre for for those of us who aren't familiar uh well yeah basically like a mandolin um this yeah. i've got the actual lyre here um <laughs> so just, I'm not sure how it's going to sound like through this little microphone, but like, for example. A bit like a mandolin. Hmm. That, that's, that's the beauty, again, of so few strings, but so many different timbres. It's like, hmm. um, it's a bit like playing a church organ. Rather than <laughs> when you improvise on a lyre, instead of adding lots of different notes like a jazz pianist, you just simply change the timbre. And there's so many ways of doing this, and I demonstrate this throughout the album. Besides tremolo, um, which we just demonstrated there, you have this wonderful block and strum, which I mentioned. Um, that's basically where I'm blocking specific strings and um, strumming either with my fingernails or a plectrum. Mm-hmm. It sounds a bit like an Appalachian dulcimer. It's like a strum drone of which I strum the melody. Um, other things you can do, um, you can play these wonderful harmonics. Um, very, uh, or harmonics together even. Just, just take my headphones off a minute so I can hear what I'm doing. Or you can do these hammered on sounds, which are really very strange sounding, um, something like this. And the actual instrument itself um, has holes in the bottom. The actual original instrument has holes in the bottom. And you can actually create wah-wah effects. Um, I don't know what this is going to sound like through the little microphone, but something like this. So again, it's like a little bit like playing a church organ. Um, mm. You can vary the timbre so much that it's like playing about five instruments at the same time. Wow, that sounds very versatile and um, nuanced. Excellent. So you used this lyre to compose a piece of music that you wanted to talk about specifically, which is called The Holy Nile. And I thought we could maybe go through this the song and sort of discuss some of the influences on its composition and how it came about. So perhaps uh, what I'll do is I'll um, play the first 30 seconds of this song and then maybe you can uh, tell us, take us through what went on with this. Yes, certainly. So how did this how did this musical piece come about? What was the inspiration? Uh, yeah, um, this piece was actually commissioned. Um, it was actually con- contacted on my website by um, the Egyptian film score composer, Remen Sakar. 
and he wanted to include it on his album, um, his 2017 album, The Epic of Thebes, Story of Passion and War. A very mm. interesting concept album. It was based on the um, Achmosis who, who liberated Egypt from the Hyksos. And yeah, it was quite um, an orchestral film score type sound, but he wanted to have an authentic um, liar in it, so that's why he contacted me. Hmm. So, yeah, this gave me the inspiration to do something really interesting because I've never had my tunes orchestrated before, so I really wanted to see what this would sound like. Hmm. So, in thinking of an actual melody, um, I sort of went back to basics and think, okay, although the, the Egyptians had a form of um, musical notation, which is called um, coronomy, uh, which is in fact still practiced in the Coptic church, this uses hand gestures. Um, to donate, donate specific pictures. Although the ancient mm. Egyptians do, did have this system of musical notation, sadly no actual Egyptian melodies survive unlike the music of ancient Greece. Mm. Um, so I had to be inventive. And so I listened I went back to Egyptian folk music, um, particularly mm. simia players of Port Said. Mm. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and... Uh, yeah, this wonderful simsimia, this is basically an instrument that has evolved from pharaonic times and it's still played to the present day. It has all these wonderful tremolo sounds and regarding the actual mode, the, the scale used, it has this wonderful um, intense melodic minor sound. Um, so that's how I just decided which mode, which sort of scale to play it in and the sort of general style of playing. So basically, the tune is based on traditional Egyptian folk music. But like all folk music, folk music has often ancient origins. So there might be a little bit of the modern folk music that goes way back to pharaonic times and particularly played on uh, a lyre. Um, this sort of almost transforms a folk melody into something that sounds ancient. But again, mm -hmm. the, the, the actual melody, although it is an original composition, in short, mm -hmm. was um, based on some of the traditional folk songs I heard from Port Said and using some of the one of the main mo the musical scales that I heard throughout um, the, the musical listened to from this particular region, region of Egypt. So with that in mind when you were when you were writing it and composing it was there a particular story in your head or an image or a, an idea that was running through the piece? I just wanted to play um, a kind of um, Oh, a kind of evocative, um, slow type. Oh, oh, how can I describe <laughs> Hard to it? explain, I guess. Yeah. It's in the music, yeah, isn't it? Usually, it is, yeah. Usually when I start off, I don't sit there with a pen and paper, um, like hmm. Mozart or Beethoven or something. I like to develop tunes organically. And basically how I do that, I just like, basically I jam. I just develop melodic hmm. ideas, record them, listen back to them. Think, oh, that works. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I'll get um, the structure of a melody. And I find that the initial, the initial final result, I should say, sounds more spontaneous rather than someone who's labored with a pen and paper and it sounds very meticulous mm -hmm. and very constrained sometimes I find if I listen to some classical music, I find it very constraining. Whereas I like my tunes to sound like improvisations and most of them do sound a bit like improvisations because that's how they start off um, mm. organically as an actual improvisation, but which I listen back to and add structure after that. And then mm. we record the results. So if you were to play a piece like this live, would you um, play it relatively consistently or would you improvise and add flourishes here and there as you go? 
Um, I usually play, I usually start off with a basic structure. Um, that's the thing with improvisation. Mm. Um, you can't just play any random notes because then it sounds like a, <laughs> um, a five-year-old kid bashing on the piano keyboard. Mm. Um, the human brain um, prefers structure. So I always start off with basic structure. So that usually an A theme, a B theme. And then anything after that, um, I can add Lincoln sections, I can change the timbre, like I mentioned before, like a pipe organ by playing harmonics or how I pluck the strings or strum the strings. And that's how I, that's how I create the, um, the variation in the improvisation, more, more by changing the timbre, but I always start off with a, um, a firm structure. We will return with part two of my conversation with Michael in just a moment. First, we need to take a quick break. See you soon. Okay, so uh, let's let's dive in a little bit deeper into this uh, this liar that you had um, used that you made a replica of, or you commissioned a replica of, and um, let's talk about the object itself. So. For those who aren't familiar, I mean, I'll I'll put pictures of this object on the on the website. But what is what is so significant about the the Leiden lyre? Well, what's significant about it is um, <laughs> it exists, it survived um, hmm. over like almost three thousand five hundred years. Hmm. Um, the reason you can sort of have a guesstimate at its actual age is because thankfully there are some depictions um, of very similar instruments which can be dated. And you can date the age of the instrument by the angle of the yoke. That's like the, the crossbar at the top. Um, okay. And um, the, the, the earlier forms of this lyre in Egypt, um, the, the, the angle of the yoke, the crossbar, is quite slanted in comparison to the sound box. Whereas the later okay. ones, um, the, the angle of the yoke is... Um, becomes more parallel so right. you can tell that's one of these quite early lies and by the archaeological sort of record as far as ancient egyptian art goes anyway when these lies start appearing in the artwork they first mm. appeared around um 1550 bc around the mm -hmm. time of Amenosis the third um okay. oh, sorry sorry no um they sorry I'll rephrase that <laughs> they start first started appearing around 1550 bc then mm. then disappear from the artwork around 1300 BC, which was the time of Amenosis III. Right. Um, there's quite a lot of alterations until the end of the Amarna period. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, it was this type of lie was seen 18 times on walls of the high officials in the necropolis of Thebes, usually mm. by women playing these lies at banquets. Mm. And does this, does this particular lie have sort of descendants later through Egyptian history or is it isolated to the New Kingdom? It's basically um, from the New Kingdom but how it ended up in Egypt is speculation but um, since there was none before the time of around 1550 BC or whatever all you see is harps so 
very similar liars appear throughout the throughout the ancient Near East, particularly uh, Canaanite liars. So just it just might be the case that these liars were first introduced into Egypt during the the, the reign of the Canaanite Hyksos. That's mm. going to make sense, um, sure, because obviously they would have brought their own culture into Egypt. And what's more, what's the most important aspect of human culture? Their music, and um, <laughs> yeah, and that's probably how these very Canaanite looking liars ended up in Egypt in the first place through the Canaanite Hyksos. And so this this liar, this specific liar, the physical object, also seems to have an interesting um, after history. So can you t- walk us through a little bit about what, what happened to this liar later and what's significant about, about that? Uh, yeah, I certainly will. Um, just a b- very brief details about how it was actually discovered. Um, it was, I think it was like the 1820s, some guy called um, Piccini, or somebody I can't quite pronounce his name. Hmm. Um, he, he, he sort of dug it up, um, found it in Thebes. It wasn't a true archaeological, it wasn't sadly a fully documented archaeological discovery. He was finding no, I can imagine. Sell on to <laughs> different things. But um, the most interesting thing about the lyre itself is the, there is an inscription on the back of the original in- the original instrument and the fascinating thing about this inscription you can tell from the style of the basically the grammar and the words used that it dates to an entirely different era almost a thousand years later after these the actual original lie was built which is absolutely wow. amazing uh so yeah basically someone had found this 18th dynasty liar which mm. was already more than a thousand years old scribbled this poem on the back of it and perhaps they had it buried with them in their tomb shafts when you, when they die. That's the amazing thing. And then, and fascinatingly, you can actually translate um, the the text of this song. And it's very similar to an ancient Greek song. It's the, the sort of same ilk as um, eat, drink, and be merry now because you'll be dead tomorrow. So make the most of life while it lasts. Um, and here's the actual translation of the thing. Um, oh, ye are anointed with ointment. Great and young rejoice. Come follow a fortunate day. Um, there is no fate of somebody's name mentioned, um, which you can't distinguish. Um, there's no fate of this person coming back and no living again. Kiss much again, again, and again. Rejoice. Kiss much again, again, and again. Mm-hmm. So the text of this song, um, according to the grammar, is probably, is probably no later than around 300 BC, um, almost like the Ptolemaic period, um, mm. or even the Roman period, in fact, of Egypt. Um, and it's very similar to um, an ancient Greek drinking song, the Epitaph of Sikolos, which has exactly the same sentiment. And the words of that are, um, while you live, shine, have no grief at all, for life exists but a short while, and time demands its end. Exactly the same sentiment. And in fact, almost from the same period as the epitaph of Sikolos, the earliest it could be was around 200 BC, exactly this sort of um, um, Ptolemaic or Roman period of um, Egyptian history. How fascinating. So would we imagine that this lyre was uh, buried in a tomb and then acquired by someone a thousand years later? It would be hard to imagine it kicking around for a thousand years and staying in good condition. <laughs> That's a fascinating thing. I mean, it must have been a very important instrument to have survived it more or less, in- more or less intact to what um, a thousand years until, until like 3000, sorry, until about 300 BC when this poem is wrote on the back of it. Mm-hmm. But um, obviously in Egypt, the climate is so much different, very desiccated and dry. And it was, if it was in lying around somewhere it might have been recycled from someone else's tomb i mean they did that quite a bit mm. i believe in egypt recycled mm-hmm. certain artifacts and 
lies are part and parcel of this celebration of life because music is a celebration of life. So what's the perfect thing to put in your tomb? Looking at looking at pictures of this lyre and sort of the artistic depictions of it, it seems to be held in kind of an unwieldy way, like a, a box in front of you. Is it is it a heavy object? Is it difficult to hold for periods of time? No, it's a, quite a light object. And the way they actually hold these lyres is um, they hold them horizontally. So instead of the arms um, sticking up near your chin, mm. um, the, the further away. And um, there's a very good example of, um, I actually used it for the album cover of um, this a very, very similar looking lyre from a Theban tomb, from Theban tomb number 38. And I'm not very good mm-hmm. at pronouncing these Egyptian names. The tomb of Zesekaras, oh dear, um, <laughs> Zesekarasoneb or something. Um, basically, it's an 18th dynasty tomb dating back to around um, 1400 BC. Um, it has this rather famous depiction of this lovely looking Egyptian lady and she's holding it horizontally as these lyres were meant to be played. That's why there's these sound holes on the, at the bottom of the thing. Now the sound holes make no sense if you hold it upright because then it'd be on your lap. But if mm. you're playing these standing up ceremonially then the sound holes are at the back projecting the sound out of the back of the instrument. Yeah. So yeah, to kind of rewire my brain a bit, getting used to playing these lyres um, horizontally but I find that the actual block and strum technique works so much better when you actually hold them that way. Um, yeah, so a fascinating, yeah, fascinating instrument with a fascinating history. It is. And what is, uh, what is your replica made of? What type of wood? Um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, because <laughs> um, the, the, these wonderful people in Greece made it from the woods they had. Um, mm. The actual original sort of wood that they would have used in ancient Egyptian times, more a sort of reddish wood. I think it's called tamarisk or something. Mm-hmm. But um, that obviously is not native to Greece. So <laughs> the wood is very nice quality, but um, I don't think it's exactly cut out of an Egyptian log, so to speak. So, mm. But like anything, um, you can't ever reconstruct even an instrument. You can only sort of recreate it to the best sure. ability that you can. But the dimensions are pretty much the same as the original instrument mm. and the, the playing techniques I use um, but they're more in more um, historically inspired I suppose than in historically informed because there isn't any there is no reference anywhere in any ancient Egyptian lit- literature or no that how these instruments were actually meant how the techniques to play them these can sure. only be inferred from how the literally inferred by places where the lyre is still being played today um, and mm. that, that of course is throughout the African continent and that shows particularly this block and strum t- style uh, the use of tremolo in the Egyptian sim simia. My style basically is a conglomerate of all the things I'm able to infer plus my own imagination and creativity because when you try and get too far into this reconstruction, it sounds all very dry and academic. <laughs> I mean, the, sure. whole pur- the, whole, the whole purpose of my music is to literally carry on where the mm. ancients left off with a, what I call a new ancestral music. It's mm-hmm. um, kind of 
new age music on steroids. Basically, <laughs> it's like it's taking um, recreated ancient instruments using the same sort of ancient modes, um, intonations, but using it for new compositions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so literally, my mission is to carry on where the ancients left off. Fair enough. Then that's really all that we can hope for in the modern day. Um, but you know, that's a that's an admirable path, and we're all very grateful to you for following that. So I'm very grateful for you to listen. <laughs> okay, so Michael, that brings me to the end of my questions. So thank you very much for sharing this information with us. It's been absolutely fascinating, and thank you for coming on the show. Uh, the pleasure is mine, and say if anyone out there wants to hear more of my music, it's available from all the major digital music platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon. That's my plug out the way with. <laughs> Absolutely, and I will provide some links if anyone wants to follow those to various websites. Uh, do, you have, do you have any uh, information to share on your next project? Any ideas on what you might like to do next? That all depends on being inspired by the ancient pantheon of gods. Fair enough. <laughs> or if, indeed, if anyone out there has any suggestions for anything different, I'd like to hear. Sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, okay. Thank you very much for joining me, Michael. And I hope the gods continue to smile on you and your work. And not just the Egyptian gods, all of the gods to whom you have composed music. I, live, I can live with that. <laughs> Thank you, Great. Dominic. Thanks Pleasure. very much, Michael. Cheers. Many thanks to Michael for coming on the History of Egypt podcast. If you'd like to hear more of Michael's compositions, follow the link in the episode description. Also, we have a brief epilogue, in which Michael discusses a little bit more detail about one of his favourite instruments, and a wonderful collaboration which he enjoyed. Speaking of the um, buzzing timbre of my replica Ancient Egyptian Lyre, in track six, Ancient Egyptian Dance, the buzzing timbre of my lyre was perfectly complemented um, by the magnificent rhythmic exotic African rhythms um, produced by um, the Obacano playing of um, my friend Nick Vest. Um, the Obacano is a a really large bass register lyre still played today um, through Kenya and uh, Nick has been mastering the Obacano for quite a few years now. Um, Nick is my um, online lyre student and uh, back in 2019 he actually lugged this massive big lyre all across the Atlantic on his way from America just to jam with me and it was an amazing experience and um such an amazing experience. I wanted to preserve it for posterity, so now, thankfully, it is. Um, a bit more about the Obacano. Um, this buzzing timbre is thanks to the, the bridges, which are actually just little um, a group of reeds on which the strings rest and, and sort of freely vibrate against. And um, an interesting part of the rustic construction of the Obacano, the reeds are actually um, fixed in place with beeswax. An amazing thing. But um, I found that the sound of the Obacano sort of 
it sounded almost like an ancient Egyptian ensemble of um, the sort of lutes and things they must have they, they played back then. But uh, yeah, the the combination of buzzing timbres is quite otherworldly. Thanks again, Nick. Michael is talking about a song called Ancient Egyptian Dance from his album The Ancient Egyptian Lyre. Here is a preview. Mm-hmm. 